Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, How to Neighbor. In this series, we are learning how to build relationships with our neighbors and how to do good in the context of those relationships. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Well, good morning, church, again. How are we doing this morning? Amen. Well, we're in part four. If you're, if you're just joining us or you've been with us um, for, for this summer, we're in part four of a very important message series that we've been focusing on here at church called How to Neighbor. If you were with us in the past weeks, we've gone through pretty important and honestly meaty subjects about races reconciled, orphans embraced. Last week, we had Andy Needham, uh, who was a guest speaker, share about poor and power, or poor empowered. But Today for the final message, we're going to look into something that I think hits home for every single one of us. I mean, all those other issues um, call us all to action. Some hit home more than others, but this is a topic today and the last topic that hits home for all of us. And it might hit home from some of you even here in this room right now or with somebody that you know. Uh, But today we're going to talk about how as a church we can love and neighbor well the lonely. And so today's message is called Lonely Loved. And, you know, it's interesting to me. If you look at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see this amazing story of how God created the earth. And so we see this this story where where God, you know, creates something, and then he says this phrase, it says, it is good. And he creates something else, and it is good. And he goes through this whole thing, and he creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates man, and he says, it is very good. But then God looked at Adam— saw that he was alone. It was the first time that we said, we saw God say that it wasn't good. See, God saw that Adam was alone and he knew that that's not how Adam was wired. So God fixed it, or it wasn't a mistake, but God created Eve to be with Adam because at the heart of who we are as people and as human beings, we're not meant to be alone. So today I want to talk about the idea of loneliness, and I think that this is an idea that sometimes we can have a misconception with what it means in the church today. Because a lot of times when you think of loneliness, you might think of, you know, oh, that, that older person, or, you know, the widowed, or the widower, or something along those lines. But today I want to expand our thinking to really look into who battles with loneliness on a regular basis. There's a a newer term that there's been a lot of research going into, especially in the last 10 or 15 years in developed countries in the Western culture, and it's this this term called relational poverty. See, last week we talked about material poverty, and we talked about, you know, poor empowered, and and Andy shared stories of all over the world and third world countries and and what it looks like to to truly be poor in spirit and, and have a lack But an increasingly common problem, especially for those in the Western world, is relational poverty. See, the reality is this morning is you can be in this room with a lot of people, with your church family, and still feel very alone. You know, some of these situations might describe you, you know, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you don't have a lot of, uh, of great, you know, female or male friendships because you're so busy at home and you just feel alone. You know, maybe you work around a lot of people. You're in a busy office and your cubicle's right in the center of all this busyness, but there's not a relationship that you have with a coworker that goes in more depth than, hey, how are you today? And you feel alone. 
Maybe you're a college student surrounded by others in the dorm room, maybe even closer than you want with your roommate, but there's nobody in your, in your dorm or on your floor that you can really share your heart with and your struggles and your hurts and your joys with because you lack that intimate friendship and that trust and you feel alone. A lot of people don't talk about this one, but maybe you're a successful business leader. You've risen to the top. You've, you, you know, you're the definition of success in the worldly sense. You make a ton of money. You're in a position of power and authority, but you don't have time to invest in a single deep friendship and you feel lonely. You know, maybe you're in a dysfunctional marriage. You know, maybe the person that you lie next to, you know, every night you feel like you've lost connection with and you can't talk to and it's falling apart and you feel alone. So the question that is asked now is, you know, what's the difference between material and relational poverty? And it's, it's a pretty simple mindset that material poverty, as we talked about last week, is lacking the essentials to get you through the day. But relational poverty is this, and this is, listen church, this is the foundation of where we're headed today. Relational poverty is lacking the intimacy and connections to live a meaningful life. Lacking the intimacy and the connections to live a meaningful life. You may have a lot of people around you, but you don't feel like they care. Or you don't feel like you can trust them. Or you don't feel like you can open up. In the simplest forms, it's a lack of love, a lack of empathy, a lack of support. You lack someone to listen. You lack someone to share your story with. So why is this a growing problem? You know, because this relational poverty is really only a term that's kind of developed and, and come to light and gotten research in the past decade or so. Why is this such a growing problem in developed nations? Well, you know, in, in research of this topic, there's four theories from social esper, experts as they, they study this that I thought was interesting because before we can deal with the how do we love people that feel lonely, we need to figure out why they feel that way or why you might feel that way. The first is this. These are four theories from why this happens. The first is breakdown of families. That the reality is, the sad reality of our world today is the percentage of divorce, the divorce rate has skyrocketed within the last decade. And so we see families broken up and what happens when that happens is, you know, usually it breaks up relationships. So, you know, maybe the, you go to the same church and the husband stays and gets to church and you have to go find a new church family. Or maybe you have a similar friend group and the husband gets these friends and the wife gets these friends and that's broken and fractured. Maybe it happens with your kids. It's a breakdown of relationships. It's sad, but it's a reality. Number two, increased mobility. You know, if you look at kind of, you know, the old school days, families would, would remain in the same area for decades. You'd have lineages of my great-grandfather lived in this house, and my grandfather, and, and now I live. But because, you know, our culture is so busy and moving and we're so mobile, you know, people, especially, you know, younger professionals, they don't stay put very long. And with that, it's hard to make roots and it's hard to develop deep friendships. Number three, heavy workloads. And I think especially in this area, in, in the, the Farmington Valley and in, in, in Southern Mass, this is such a prevalent issue that we have that we're all so busy that we're not connecting intimately with one another. That we're all so busy with what's going on with our kids or with our jobs that we don't have time to invest in true friendship. So we feel alone. And the last is this, and, and there's so many good things that can come, and, and it's a tool that it can be to help, but the rise of social media and a media-focused world has contributed big time to the sense 
of relational poverty. See, we may get a glimpse into somebody's life. We may get a, a little snapshot into maybe a good portion or something that's cool that's happening on vacation or something that they're eating that day that looks delicious, but we aren't getting a deep sense of relational intimacy. So what do we do? I mean, this is an interesting one, and, and I love social media. You know, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and this is very interesting. And so I looked at this, and basically, what do we do when we feel alone? Especially young adults, when, when we're feeling alone, you'll take that selfie and you'll post it in hopes that somebody will comment or like it. And you measure your value and your self-worth based on how many likes you had, or whether that person that you were trying to post a photo for commented. We're trying to meet a longing sense of intimacy, but experts say that really by doing that, we're deferring the loneliness to later. So this morning, we're gonna dive in church into how do we, as a church body, love people who are lonely? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you. Father, I thank you for every man and woman, boy, girl, that came to church this morning. Father, I thank you that you brought each one of them here for a purpose and a reason. And Father, I ask this morning that you would give us the eyes to see those who are hurting and give us a heart to care to do something. Father, give us wisdom this morning and courage to love those who might need an extra touch today. Father, even I, I pray boldly that you would bring something to mind, even in this moment Someone to our mind, each one of us, that might need an extra touch or an extra smile today. Maybe it's someone sitting two seats down who's hurting and nobody knows about it, Father. Maybe it's somebody in one of our offices or, or grandma who lost her husband or a teenage child who's not fitting in. Father, I pray this morning through your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see and a heart to care. Father, spur us into action this morning through your word. It's in your amazing name we pray. Amen. So now we've kind of developed this idea of, of here's the reason and some of the reasons, kind of some of the core reasons why loneliness exists. But the key question that we've been going through in all these subjects is how do we love those who are lonely? How do you and me in all different stages of life, how do we do this? How do us as a church body love those in our community, in our families, in our spheres of influence that are lonely? So today's gonna to be simple. Some of the other weeks, they're kind of these dense topics, but today's gonna to be very simple. We're gonna look at three of the most common ways that we saw Jesus employ himself and, and, and use his ministry to love people well. And from each of these examples through the stories of Jesus, we can take an action step from them and figure out how we can love and neighbor better. So the first is this. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down. The first way that we're gonna love the lonely is love with touch. So at this moment, all the husbands are thinking, yes, I'm lonely. That's not what we're talking about today, church, okay? But instead, I wanna look at Matthew, Matthew 8, 2, and there's this amazing story in Matthew 8, 2. So let's dive in. It says, the man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But see, there's this really cool, when we get it up on the screen, Matthew 8, 2, there's this really cool thing that happens where if you really look at this scripture, something interesting happens, that this leper is not coming up to Jesus asking a question, but making a statement. It says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't ask a question. He makes that statement. You can make me clean. Now, for us to understand the kind of the gravity of the situation, I want to give you a little background as to 
how big of a deal this was that this leper had come up to Jesus. See, leprosy, we don't really see it today, you know, at all really, but back in Bible times, leprosy was a very big deal and a very prevalent, serious disease and illness. You know, in fact, it was so prevalent and so dangerous that there were Levitical Old Testament laws on how lepers had to carry themselves in society, but also how other people had to carry themselves around lepers. You know, and so, and I don't want to get too graphic this morning, but it's important for you to understand the gravity of the situation. So this man, just a background of what leprosy does, you know, it starts with fatigue and pain in joints. It's extremely contagious, so you can catch it from somebody. So after the fatigue and the pain and joints, scaly spots start to develop. Your body begins to get covered with, with lumps filled with pus. One of the things as I was studying that is, is kind of a very fascinating but, but sad reality is, you know, as the leprosy progresses, your, your growth or growth start to develop on your vocal cords and your voice literally changes and sounds different and, and abnormal. Your face, after it progresses long enough, your face changes shapes. There's inflammation in your cheekbones. And a lot of people say that people with, you know, advanced leprosy, their faces don't resemble humans anymore, but that of a, a large animal like a lion. As they're still living, their bodies begin to decompose and it develops an extreme stench as they walk down the road. Left untreated, a leper will most likely die in about 10 years. And so this was the man, full out leper, in the presence, in the airspace of Jesus. He was extremely contagious. And honestly, he was breaking a lot of the rules because lepers were supposed to go unclean, unclean to warn people around them so they could flee so they didn't catch the disease. But this man walks up to Jesus and he makes a statement, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And so Jesus does something very specific here that we need to grab onto this morning. Matthew 8, 3, the next verse says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus reached out his hands and touched the man. See, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I'd be like, all right, we're praying for you from a distance. Get the hand sanitizer. My mom is known to always have hand sanitizer, the Diane Hermans hand sanitizer. I grab that, bathe in it, you know, but I would never think with something so contagious and so known that you would ever lay your hand on somebody. And even if you think about it, you, you dissect, you know, the, the, the miracles of Jesus. Jesus didn't need to touch him. We see all these miracles in the four gospels where Jesus spoke and using the power of his words, healings and miracles happen. I mean, one story that a lot of us know is the story of Lazarus who was dead in the cave and Jesus spoke into the cave and Lazarus came to life and, and, and came out. See, Jesus didn't need to touch him, but he did. Why do you think he did? Perhaps it was because the leper didn't just need healing from his physical disease, but maybe he needed healing from his relational poverty. Maybe Jesus knew that he needed love because he was so rejected. See, lepers were completely outcasts from society. And maybe Jesus in that moment said, you know what, I'm not just gonna heal your body, but I'm gonna heal your heart and I'm going to touch you. You know, there are people here this morning who, who come to Valley Brook and you might come because of the, the band that we have or, or because of the messages or the coffee or the beautiful campus. But some of you, the true reason that you come is this might be the one place a week 
that you might get a hug or a handshake or any type of, of human connection. You know, I, I traveled uh, a couple years back to uh, Colombia, South America, and it was a life-changing journey for me. If you've heard me speak before, I love telling stories from that trip. It just, it really formed a lot of who I am uh, as a man of God. And, and so there's this one day we were out doing ministry, and there was a team of about probably 10 of us, and we had, we were shooting a documentary, so we had this film crew. And so we decided to go into this area of Colombia, or Bogota, which is the, one of the cities called the Black Market. You know, it's not what you think. It was basically just this long market filled with street vendors and um, just, it was a really dirty kind of lower income, you know, kind of slum area. And so we were like, let's go there. That's where the need is. Let's go and pray for people. And that whole trip, our, our, our motto was when we see people, we just want to pray for them and bless them and, and see God heal and see God do the miraculous and perform signs and wonders. And so we're so excited. So we're walking, you know, down and we're praying over people and praying over street vendors and locals and but in the corner of, of this market, so we're looking at the street, down to the left, there was this area that you could tell was kind of like the slums for the homeless people. But not to be disrespectful, but these weren't like the homeless people, you know, here in the U.S. This was like a, a slum, disgusting area that you could smell, that you could see, was just riddled with disease and hurt and pain and people that just were at the end of their rows. And you could literally see people would avoid this slum and they would walk around, they kind of cross the street and walk around. Nobody wanted to go there. And so, of course, you know, the leader of our group's like, that's where we're going. And so in my head, like, I'm already nervous about drinking the water and, like, you know, all these different things that get you come with traveling internationally. And so we're walking there, and in my head, I'm, like, having a panic attack. Like, where is my hand sanitizer? Like, you know, my mom trained me well. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe in that way. And so I'm thinking, like, I'm going to bathe in it later. Like, Lord, protect me. I'm having all these thoughts. So we, we go up to this, this group, and, and I come to a, a man, and we're praying for all these people, but kind of honestly praying from afar. And I see this one man, and I start to, to pray over him, and, and I'm like standing like, you know, from how far Drew is to me, maybe a little closer, and I ask him, like, how can I pray for him? And, and I just see that he is just hurt and depressed. He has boils on all the left side of his face. He's wearing tattered clothing. He smelled. You could just tell that this is where he lived and where he used the bathroom, and it was just a tough situation. So the internal germaphobe, you know, sinful part of me is like, I got to get out of here as fast as possible. And then the Lord spoke to me and he said, Dan, when you pray over him, grab his hand. And so I was like, nope, <laughs> nope. And, and that's how it usually works a lot. Like, you know, I, I battle with God because a lot of times I think I know better, which always ends up poorly for me. And so I had this internal battle in my head. And so finally I'm like, all right, fine. And so I, I looked at him and, and through an interpreter, I said, hey, could I hold your hand when I pray for you? And the look on this man's face when I touched his hand was a transformation. See, I'm not going to tell you that he, he got healed of all his illness because he didn't. I don't know why he didn't, but he didn't. But he was healed in that moment of relational poverty because I was probably the first person that had touched this man from like the, the normal world in years. And I held his hand and I could feel on his hand. I could see the cuts and all these things. But the Lord kind of silenced the fear in my heart. And I held his hands and I prayed for him. And I prayed identity over him. And he started to cry. And so I'm like, well, we're all in now. If we're getting sick, we're getting sick. And so I said, hey, can I give you a hug? And so I embraced this man. And he laid his filthy head into my shoulder and just transferred all of his stuff onto me. And I prayed for him and he shook and he cried. Because in that moment, 
that man knew what it meant to feel the touch, the loving touch. Because sometimes it means a little bit to say, hey, we love you, pray for you, bless you, maybe give you a couple dollars. But in that moment, his relational poverty was reversed. See, we're wired, church, for human connection and a loving touch and a loving hug. And those things can literally change people. What if we're the church that people come to and like, I don't want to like invade people's personal space. Like some people are not huggers, I get it. But what if we're the place that people come to to have that interaction and that touch once a week when they come here on Sunday morning? What if we're that place? We love people by touch. Secondly, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We love people by listening. You know, Jesus was a, a great listener. You see that all through scripture, but there's a, a cool story in Luke that I want to give you a little context for. So in the setting, in the timeline, you know, of, of Luke, Jesus had just died. And so there's these two followers that he had just died and, and nobody really knew that he had risen yet again. So these two guys that had followed him from the beginning, they were walking down a street. They had put their entire hope and their lives in the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and they just saw the Messiah die on the cross. And they had yet to understand what that meant, you know, long-term, because they had yet to see Jesus. So they were hopeless. Their eternal hopes were shot. They were depressed, and they were lonely. And then we see this cool scene when Jesus comes and walks beside them. And they don't recognize Jesus, but Jesus comes and walks beside them. And then we see in Luke 24, 17, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened there in these days? And he does something interesting, he says, what things he asked. See, Jesus could have in this moment, like I would have done this, Jesus could have in this moment completely made their day. He'd be like, hey, it's me, guys. Like, I'm so stoked, it's me. Surprise, like here I am. Like, that's what I would have done. Like, that would have been, then he would have been pumped. But Jesus doesn't do that. He starts with a question. Sorry, I scared you, Drew. <laughs> he jumped, it was good. Jesus asked them, but then he asked a question. See, Jesus could have revealed himself and solved their pain, but maybe Jesus knew something that we didn't. See, people need to know that we love them before they know that we have the answer to their problem. Let me say that again. People need to know that we love them before we, they know that we have the answer to their problem, before they know that we have the solution. That in the midst of their discontent and heartbreak, that someone would go to them and say, how can I pray for you? You know, I think a question that is, is overused in our cultures. Hey, how are you? Like how many times do we have that question? Like even on Sunday morning, hey, how are you doing? Oh, good, cool. It's just like kind of a social thing, but we never really expect an answer. And you know that there's, a, there's always that one person that like gives you the answer. And so you try not to ask like, hey, how are you? Well, and, and they just, and you're like, ah. but, but legitimately we ask that question so many times, but do we really want to know? See, have you ever been asked the question, hey, how are you really? Hey, what's going on in your life really? Like, be honest with me. Because those moments that you open up and basically you're saying, hey, I, I, I care. More than just like greeting you, like, I care about you. Tell me about what's going on. You know, there's a, a funny saying that says, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. So maybe he's trying to tell us the priority of listening and talking. So I learned this about six and a half years ago um, 
very, very quickly the power of listening and not providing a solution. And what happened six and a half years ago is I got married. See, I'm, yes, all, all the married, especially the, the married folks who have been married for a while are shaking their head. See, I, I'm a pastor. I'm a fixer. I like fixing things. I like solutions. That's just how I'm wired just in general. And so I remember like, you know, me and my wife, Lisa, you know, we were, we moved in together and like she was going through the first crisis. And I remember as she's sitting there, I'm like in my head, like, I have the solution. Like, I have it. I got to figure it out. And like, I'm like, as she's talking, I'm not even really listening. I'm just thinking of like the best way that I can like seem godly, but also give her like the best answer in the out. And so like, I remember when she was done, I was like, well, let me, honey, I got something. And I started <laughs> giving her my solution and her, like her sadness turned to like anger. And I was very confused by this situation. Cause I'm like, honey, I just solved the problem. What's the issue? She's like, I don't want a solution. I just want you to listen. And I can't say that that was the last time that that happened. I'm working on it. But my wife wants somebody to bear witness to what's going on in her heart more than she cares about the solutions that I have. Because honestly, a lot of times she already knows the solution, but she wants me to listen because it shows you, hey, I love you and I care. You know, um, about two years ago, we had a a really sad situation in the Granby public school system. Right in the beginning of the school year, um, we got a call <clears throat> from the, the principal of Granby. It was like second week of school that a student had, a senior had died suddenly. Um, and they basically said, you know, we're not equipped to, to deal with the, the crisis and the counseling. You know, we're brand new in school. And so would you and, and Pastor Clark or lead pastor, would you guys come down and just help assist us in just talking with students that are hurting and that are broken and helping kind of triage that. And so usually in, in today's society with public school systems, you know, we never get that invite. So we're like, absolutely. We dropped everything, went to the school. And I remember I sat in this conference room. They, they put us in this conference room and, and kids just cycled in and out, just broken. Wanting answers and, and, and just not understanding. But I remember there was one kid and we'll say his name was Matthew, but you know, Matthew came in probably more towards the end of the day and, and all the other students had kind of left and, and Matthew sat to my right and you know, he walked in and, and I just asked him a question. I said, you know, tell me what's going on in your heart. Not how are you, but just tell me what's going on in your heart. And he just started weeping and I started weeping because I'm a sympathy crier. And so we're weeping together and he's just telling me about just all these memories that he had with his friend and how he just doesn't understand it. Instead of sitting there and giving him all these theological Bible verses about why bad things happen and comfort and all these things, the Lord just said, shut your mouth and listen. And so I sat there for an hour and a half and listened to him just weep and share about his friends. And every once in a while there would be a, a silence and I'd let it sit and then I'd ask another question. And so I got a text message from him a couple days later, and, or actually that, that afternoon, and he said, you know, Dan, thank you so much for sitting and listening to me. It meant more than you'll ever know. And Matthew ended up coming to youth group the next week, and, and he came for a couple weeks, and then probably about a month later, I actually remember it because I was supposed to be leading the closing worship song, but I was in my office not knowing that that was happening, leading Matthew to Christ, and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, all because I listened. And that was God. See, there are people in your lives right now that the best way that you can love them is to ask them an open-ended question and then just listen. Sometimes people don't want you to fix something. They just want to be heard. So we love with touch. We love with listening. And finally, if you're taking notes, point three, we love with time. And this is probably the most foundational, and in my opinion, the most important one 
you know, we see Jesus, he, you know, he walked the earth for, he, he lived to about 30 years old, and at 30 years old, he started his ministry. And so from 30 to about 33 and a half, we see in the Gospels this amazing ministry of Jesus. He's healing people, turning water into wine, calling out the Pharisees. I mean, he is a busy man. He's traveling all over the place doing amazing things. He was always moving, always going somewhere, but he was never so busy that he couldn't be interrupted. Time and time again, we see that Jesus was on his way somewhere. We always see that language. He was on his way somewhere, but he was never rushed. It's really important. One of my favorite stories in Luke 5, one of my favorite stories in, in, in Scripture altogether you know, Jesus is in just kind of a context. Jesus is in a town and he's teaching. You know, he did a lot of this. He, he was all about teaching and, and, you know, there was all these people there. They were, they were gathered in this house and there were more people than the house could hold. And there were, you know, people that wanted to hear from him. There were Pharisees there, you know, the, the, the men of the law and of religious culture that wanted to prove him wrong and all these things. And so Jesus is in the midst of all these people having like this intense life group is in my head, like our, our translation. And so there's these four guys and they get wind that Jesus is in town and they've heard of his miracles and they've heard of all these things. And so they're excited about it. So they're like, hey, our friend is paralyzed. Jesus heals. So let's bring our friend to Jesus. And so these four guys figured out Jesus was in town. They put their friend on a stretcher and they carry their friend to the house that Jesus was, was teaching. The problem was, is it was packed. People were out. There was no way they could get inside. So these guys get an idea. And I think this is awesome. They're so persistent and care so much and believe so much that they bring their friend to the roof and they start digging a hole into the mud and in the, the clay on the roof, digging a hole big enough to where they could lower their friend into the middle of this meeting so he could be healed by Jesus. Now, a lot of us have been in life groups and you know that life group that has that one family with the one kid that sometimes is a little distracting and maybe they don't watch them too much. And if you think life group is distracting with a little kid running around sometimes, imagine somebody's digging through the ceiling of your house as you're trying to teach. And that's what happens. And so they dig this hole, Jesus is teaching. I just would love to be a fly on the wall in this setting. And these men lower this guy on a stretcher into the center of the room. And now a lot of things could have happened. Jesus could have been like, you know what, wait your turn. All these people waited. He could have had his like security team, you know, like if this happened at Valley Brook, like we'd have like a bunch of guys like tackling him and whatever. Like there's like all these things that could have happened, but something happened. What does Jesus do? He stopped. In the middle of teaching, point three, whatever, he stops. He didn't ignore it, but he stops. He looks at the man and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Oh, and by the way, go and be healed. The power of this is that sometimes we get interrupted. Jesus shows that whoever God puts, listen church, this is important, whoever God puts in front of you is your divine appointment. You know, I have this friend, his name's Chad Johnson, and he's a missionary that we support at Valley Brook, and um, Chad, this is his, his life motto. His motto is, whoever God puts in my path, that is a person that God has divinely put in my path for me to love which is like awesome when you're doing ministry stuff, but it's not so awesome when you're trying to like shop or like go out to eat quickly because Chad literally lives this. Like we'll go to a restaurant and you know, he'll pray for the family walking out on the way out. And then we'll go and we'll sit down. He'll pray for the waitress. And then, you know, we'll, we'll be walking out as we're paying out the register. He'll, he'll pray for that person. Even though there's a line of 20 people, he'll still take the time. How can I pray for you? And I'm like panicking. Like going food shopping with Chad is a nightmare. But Chad is literally in his head, he's like, you know what? Every person, and he does it. He doesn't just talk, talk. he walks the walk. 
but the amazing life change that has, he's seen and the fruit that he's seen by just not missing it is amazing. And the last story I want to I tell this morning, um, there was a, a really tragic situation that happened in town a couple, um, about a month and a half ago. There was a, a young mom who passed away. Um, you know, she taught at Westminster School. Uh, her family, you know, a lot of you might know the situation, and, and I'm very sorry if you're grieving that. Um, and my wife works at Westminster, and so my wife knew this young mom, and, and it was just this tragic situation where the mom had a, had a baby, and a couple weeks later went back to the hospital and had complications and passed away. And she was a 30, I believe, 32-year-old mom with, with kids and a husband that she left behind. And uh, I remember when, you know, Lisa and my wife got the news uh, from the dean of, of the school. We were having a family picnic, and, um, you know, my brother-in-law comes out, and he's like, hey, you need to go be with Lisa. She found out that her friend passed away. And so, you know, I walked back inside, and Lisa's just broken. And, uh, you know, as my wife being a young mom as well, she's just all these things are going through her head. And so we just sat there and we prayed for this family. And a couple weeks later, my wife attended the, um, the memorial service. And she came home and I remember what she said. She said, Dan, I sat there and I, and I watched it and I just wept. Because it put into perspective for me how little importance so much of the stuff that I focus on has. You know, she said that as people talked about this, this mom, that they talked about the time spent and the memories that they had. And Lisa's like, you know what, like, I don't care about buying a house or, or climbing, you know, the chain at Westminster or, you know, all those things, that having nice clothes or having nice cars. I just sat there and thought about, man, I don't, I want to spend every waking moment that I have investing time in Noah and Grace, our two kids, in, in our marriage. And it was amazing how, this situation brought into context for my wife that so many things that we focus on and then we get busy with are so unimportant in the scheme of spending time with people. There are people in your lives right now, church, although you are insanely busy, and many of us are, that are longing for time with you. One of the best ways that you can love them is give them time. In student ministry, we have this saying that students spell love, T-I-M-E. I'm afraid that as a culture, we are so bombarded with what seems urgent that we fill our calendars with all those things that seem urgent and there's no time left for what's important. We fill our calendar with all those things that seem urgent, work, uh, you know, sports, kid stuff, you know, all these other things and we miss out on what is important. Do not let church, listen carefully this morning, do not let the urgent crowd out the important. So we love the lonely by touch, we love the lonely by listening, and we love the lonely by giving time. I'm gonna invite the worship team up as we close this morning. This begs the question, because you know, we're talking about how we love as a church and how we help people that are lonely, but the question that I wanna ask is, what if that's you this morning? What if you're the one who feels alone? And from knowing some of your stories, I know that some of you in here this morning, this is a hard thing because you do feel alone because of whatever's going on in your life. I pray this morning, I'm gonna make a statement, and I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart more than my words do, and you understand that this is genuine, my heart and our, and our church's heart, that you are family. If you feel alone and you're here this morning, you are family, we are family, we're imperfect, we're dysfunctional at times, we mess it up, but we love each other. And we have been given to one another by God to walk through hard times. Hear this this morning. We love you 
and God loves you. We love you and God so loves you. God designed us for relationship, for intimacy. And I want to read something this morning as we close and transition into communion. It's a scripture for you. If you're just saying, I just feel lonely this morning, I want to read you a scripture from Isaiah 41.10 that by prayers will, will give you comfort. It says this, don't, don't you be afraid for I am with you. Don't be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with my right hand of righteousness. See, church, you might feel alone this morning, but you're not alone. We love you, and God loves you more than you could ever imagine. You know, as we wrap up the past four weeks of how to neighbor, of how to prayerfully, you know, motivate and mobilize our faith community to love well and to answer these big questions in culture, I want us to remember this. How do we neighbor? And coming back to the root of this, Jesus said it best, Love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you that you love us, Father. And I just pray that this morning, if there are those of us that might feel lonely, Father, that you would bring comfort. Father, that you would help them see that they are not alone, but instead that they have a Father in heaven who sees them, who created them, who knows them by name. But Father, for others of us, Father, I pray that you would challenge us to love well, that the people that you've put on our heart this morning that might be lonely, that we wouldn't just sit by and get busy, but that we would make the important more of a priority than the urgent. That we would make the important the urgent. Father, help us to neighbor well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.